Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Jesus is the reason for the season. And I just want to say this, that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth is the most significant event in all of history. There has never been an event like this. And when you look back and you talk about significant events in history, you have to know that there have been some, some situations or inventions or, or circumstances that have literally impacted life on the planet for, for millennium. And uh, let me just mention a couple of them. The invention of the wheel. The invention of the wheel has literally changed, uh, changed all of our lives. We're all beneficiaries of that. Uh, learning how to melt and work with iron is another milestone in civilization and in us being able to move forward uh, in, as, as humans uh, dealing with uh, civilization. The Industrial Revolution, which occurred uh, and, and just really did revolutionize our lives. The steam engine, the Gutenberg press, the electric light, uh, the invention of telephone, telegraph, television. Those were all significant uh, uh, inventions that have impacted our lives. Atomic power is another incredible thing that has changed our planet, changed our world. Personal computers, and uh, even more than personal computers, I, I would say compact computers like this little compact computer that happens to have a phone app on it. These have changed our lives. They have literally changed our lives. And all the things that, that we can do with those inventions. And yet Jesus, the coming of Jesus to earth, is the most significant event in all of human history, it is the only thing that has literally split history in two. We actually mark time before Jesus came and after Jesus came. He is the, the one, when you write a check, when you write a date, when you are telling someone your birthday, you are referencing how many months, years uh, it's been since Jesus came to this planet. He literally split history in two. And, and I, think, I think that not just acknowledging that Jesus came, but understanding why Jesus came is something that is very, very important for us. There are a number of places where the Bible talks about why Jesus came. One of my favorite explanations is found in a conversation that Jesus had with a little tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. It's found in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. And Jesus himself is speaking and he says, the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. That's why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save those that are lost. So let me just, let me drill down just a little bit on that verse. The son of man came. The son of man came. That is very important. Don't just breeze past that. And what that says to us is that Jesus literally came to this planet. He was fully God. He was fully man. He actually showed up in a human body. He is not just the Christ spirit. He's not just an idea. He's not just some mist floating around out there, you know, in the ionosphere. He was a physical being. He was God Incarnate, He was a physical being. The Son of Man 
came. I was born in 1954 in St. Luke's Hospital in Houston, Texas, to Don and Sophia Neal. Uh, I didn't have any say in where I would be born. I didn't have any choice in when I would be born or who my parents would be. And that is true not only for me, that's true for all of us here in this room. But that is not true about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not that way at all with him. As a matter of fact, Paul writes in Galatians 4, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. And every detail about his coming, about his life, his ministry, and even even the end of his life and how all of that occurred was planned out in detail and foretold. Now, this morning, I just want to focus on the incarnation. I just want to focus on on Jesus' birth, his coming to earth. And I want you to know that there are uh, over 300 Bible prophecies that predict certain details about the incarnation, about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the more prominent ones, just seven of the more prominent ones, the more well-known ones, are this, that he would be born of a woman. And again, this is significant because he came, okay? He's not just an idea. He's not just a spirit, but he was born. He was born of a woman. He was a descendant of Abraham. He was from the tribe of Judah. He was number four, a descendant of David. He was announced by John the Baptist. Now just think about that for a minute. It was foretold hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was born that, that there would be a forerunner and that he would announce uh, the coming of the Messiah. And, uh, that, and we know that it was John the Baptist, but it was announced that he would be a voice crying in the wilderness. Who sends a herald to announce that somebody really, really important is coming? Who sends a herald into the wilderness to make that, that announcement? Why wasn't he in Jerusalem? Why wasn't he in some of the larger cities? Why wasn't he in the marketplace? Why wasn't he standing on the steps of the temple tell, telling everyone when they, when they were finished with their worship time? But it is, it is significant that it was foretold and that is exactly what happened. That John the Baptist was in the wilderness and that instead of him coming to the metropolitan areas that multitudes of people went out into the wilderness to hear John preach. And part of his message was that the Messiah was coming. Here, here is another very, very specific prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ that he would be born in Bethlehem. And it gets a little more complicated than that because it mentions three, three different locations, three different uh, uh, geographic locations. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be called out of Egypt and he would be known as a Nazarene. And so when we read through the story, we see that he was in fact born in Bethlehem. And as you remember the story, uh, Herod was, uh, uh, did his best to, to locate and identify who this king of the Jews was and he wanted to kill him. Joseph was warned by an angel to, to take uh, the baby and his mother and to flee into Egypt and to wait there until it was safe to come back home. And so at the right time, God uh, spoke to Joseph again in a dream and said the people who were trying to kill him are dead now. It's safe to come back. And so he came back. And the fact that he did not come back to Bethlehem and he did not... Uh, 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 
come back to, to any other city. The fact that he came back to Nazareth is in itself an amazing miracle. And I, we could take an entire service just talking about those circumstances, how Herod uh, was just such a crazy man and uh, his family was in, in such disarray. One of his worst bloodthirsty sons was in charge in, in the area uh, of Galilee where Joseph could have come back and would have more than likely uh, reunited with his family and, and lived. And instead, Herod's worst son, most oppressive, bloodthirsty son, is ruling there only for a very short period of time, just long enough for Joseph to hear that this terrible tyrant is ruling there. And they, instead of going back to the uh, the homestead, they come to Nazareth, and Jesus is raised in Nazareth and known as a Nazarene. Very, very specific. But the one that stands head and shoulder, shoulders above all of the other prophecies is the prophecy that we find, one of the prophecies that we find in the book of Isaiah, as Isaiah prophesies that Jesus, or the Christ, the Messiah, would be born from a virgin. And, and, and we have this promise that there would be a virgin birth. A virgin would be with child, and, and she would bring forth a son, and he would be, uh, you know, his, his identity is laid out for us. Let me give you just a little bit of background. The nation of Israel was united under King Saul. King Saul was the first, uh, the first king of Israel. After King Saul, there was King David, and David was an incredible king. And then his son Solomon ruled and reigned over the kingdom. When Solomon uh, passed away, his son came to power and he was a very foolish young king. The people of the nation rebelled against his rulership. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of them uh, remained loyal to the king, Benjamin and Judah, those two tribes, and they formed the nation of Judah. The other ten tribes established their own nation. And from that point on, those tribes never were united as one nation. Again, there were always two separate nations. Most of the time, they had friendly relationships and they cooperated with one another. But there were times in history when they actually went to war uh, against one another. And it was just a terrible, sad time uh, when, when those things happened. But this is, this is after, after the nation has been split, the nation of Israel. So you have the ten tribes, which are Israel, the two tribes, uh, which are known as Judah, these two different nations. King Ahaz is the king over Judah. And King Ahaz is in a real pickle because his arch enemies, the Syrians, are, are coming against him. They want to make war against Judah. Judah's small, relatively small and a no match for the Assyrians. They were bloodthirsty. They were known for their viciousness and their, uh, their military might. And not only are the Syrians coming after Judah, but the Assyrians have also brokered uh, uh, an agreement uh, with the nation of Israel. And Israel has agreed to uh, be partners with the Assyrians in coming against Judah. So now it's not just one mighty army coming against Judah. It's two armies that are 
uh, Judah is vastly outnumbered. Uh, Ahaz is worried. The people are worried. And so the prophet Isaiah comes to Ahaz to speak to him. And he wants to bring a message from the Lord. A message of hope. A message of comfort. A message that God is still on the throne. God's going to take care of you. You're not going to be wiped off the map. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And God's purpose and plan will be fulfilled. And so Isaiah comes to King Ahaz and says... Just choose a sign from anything in heaven or on earth. Choose a sign and God will perform that sign so that you will know that what I'm saying to you is true. That God is not going to allow you to be wiped off the map. That he will protect you because the, the, the word of God says that the Messiah is going to come from, uh, uh, from the lintage. Uh, oh, let's see here. He's going to come... Uh, from the tribe of Judah and from the house of David, and you are from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David, and you cannot be wiped out because the Messiah is not here yet, and God wants to give you a sign. And so Ahaz says, no, no, no. He says, I'm not going to tempt God like that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to tempt God like that. And that may sound spiritual, that may sound humble, that may sound, you know, like a, a reasonable way to respond to God. No, I'm just going to believe God, God, I don't need a sign. But the fact of the matter was uh, Ahaz did not act, ask for a sign because he had already made a secret agreement with the Syrians that he would sell out his own people in order to spare his life and his fortunes. And so instead of Instead, you know, it wasn't a matter of him not wanting to test God. It was a matter of him not wanting to trust God. He, he, he did not want to be put in that position of trusting God or trusting it. He was going to take care of it himself and work things out on his own. And this is when Isaiah says, okay, you're not going to choose a sign. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The Lord himself will give you a sign, and this is what the sign is going to be. A virgin is going to conceive and give birth to a son. And this, is, this, this would cause anybody to raise their eyebrows, but especially in this context, because Ahaz is married, and he's got children, and Isaiah is married, and he and his wife have a son. So it can't be Ahaz's wife, and it can't be Isaiah's wife, and Isaiah is not talking about Ahaz's wife or his own wife. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would be called Emmanuel, God with us, the greatest gift ever given from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David, and God is going to bring this to pass. And so in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the prophet Isaiah writes these words. He says, all right then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 740 years later, 740 years later, Joseph and Mary are engaged. They're looking forward to their wedding. They have, they have kept themselves pure. Mary comes to Joseph and says, we need to have a talk. Uh, I'm going to have a baby. And Joseph, uh, you can imagine, his world is thrown into turmoil. He loves this woman. He's trusted her. And now all of his world is upside down. 
And while he is pondering, how do I handle this? What do I do? I don't want her to be killed as, as, you know, as the law would, would state. And some people would be more than happy to, to execute that sentence on her. How can, I, how, how can I disengage myself from this situation? What do I do? How do I handle this? And Joseph worries himself to sleep. And in the middle of the night, an angel appears to him and speaks to him and says this in Matthew chapter 1 verse 20. The angel of the Lord came to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Pause button. What, the, what I'm about to read to you The next verse is a direct quote. The angel quotes Isaiah 7, 14. The angel continues speaking, and this is the direct quote from Isaiah. He says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we have these seven different prophecies that are just seven out of over 300 that deal with specific instances about the birth of the Messiah. Just, just a quick review and a word of explanation just to help you understand how incredibly miraculous this is. Born of a woman, descended from Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, announced by John the Baptist in the wilderness, born in Bethlehem, called out of Egypt, known as a Nazarene, and born of a virgin. That's seven different prophecies that are given by five different individuals over a span of 1,200 years. And every one of them were fulfilled to the detail, all of them pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, that's only seven out of over 300. And there were many others that, that we're not talking about today. But just to give you an idea, uh, the, Bible, the Bible declares that when, when the Messiah come, that he would come riding on a colt. Think of how counterintuitive that is. Jesus came on a colt. He didn't come on a stallion. He didn't come on a war horse like a conqueror would, like, like you would imagine the Messiah would come. He came on a colt. As a sign of humility, this was fulfilled when Jesus came into Jerusalem. He would be the object of a murderous plot. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He would be a willing sacrifice. His life would not be taken from him, but he would lay his life down. Uh, This is a very interesting one. In Psalms, there is a prophecy about the Messiah that he would be pierced, but not one bone in his body would be broken. And, and, and that gives some extra insight into the, the meaning when Pontius Pilate told the soldiers, uh, you know, go and check and see if these guys are still alive and if they are, break their legs because that would hasten their death. These uh, Jesus and these two thieves on the cross. And they came and the thieves were still alive, still breathing. They broke their legs so that they would not be able to push themselves up to take a breath But Jesus had already passed. He had already said, it is finished. His spirit had left his body and not one bone in his body 
was broken. And then the, uh, uh, another prophecy about him being resurrected from the dead. Jesus fulfilled every one of these prophecies. And I want you to see, just in these ones that we've mentioned, how it starts large and then it just focuses down. It's like pouring facts into a funnel. And they just funnel down until you get to the one obvious conclusion that he would be born of a woman. Well, who in here has not been born of a woman? That's everybody on the planet, folks. So that's where we start. And then that, that he would be a descendant of Abraham. That greatly reduces the number. And then not only that, it narrows it down. He must be from the tribe of Judah. That makes it more narrow. And then descended from the family of David. That's even more narrow. Then that John the Baptist would proclaim his coming out in the wilderness, even more narrow. And then born in Bethlehem, called out of Egypt, known as a Nazarene. That is so specific. And then finally, born of a virgin. That is a category of one. And no one else could fulfill all of those prophecies, just these, except the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody might still say, but you know, what are the chances? I mean, what are the chances? What are the chances that it just all happened by chance? What are the chances that, you know, this, these were just random circumstances that occurred over thousands of years and somebody said something, they wrote it down, and it just, it just came to pass? Well, that would be like you predicting that uh, uh, Pierre Boudreaux is going to be born, you know, on the 4th of July in Lauraville, uh, 750 years from today. You know, and, and the circumstances, you get an idea of the, the, the magnitude of some of these prophecies. But still, there may be people who say, what are the chances? And I'm glad you asked that question. Because there was a mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner who calculated the odds. Not the odds of all 300 prophecies being fulfilled, which they were. But just taking eight of those prophecies because he had to get it down to a manageable number. So just the odds that eight of those prophecies would be fulfilled and point to the Messiah. He did the calculations and concluded that the chances of those eight being fulfilled were one in 10 to the 17th power. And if you wrote that out and put it on the screen, it would look like a number that's big enough to be the national debt. Those are the odds right there. Those are the odds. Now, to give you a visual picture that may help you understand that, if you were to take that number and convert that number into silver dollars, if you had that many silver dollars, you could scatter them across the state of Texas, from Orange all the way to El Paso, from Brownsville up to Laredo or Amarillo, I forget which, which one's further north right now, but the entire state including Dallas, Fort Worth, Metroplex, San Antonio, Austin, Houston. I mean, all every square inch of Texas that is Texas. If you covered it with this many silver dollars, you would have silver dollars that are two feet deep all the way across the state of Texas. If you were to, at random, pick one silver dollar, put an X on that silver dollar, fly across the state of Texas in an aircraft and at 30,000 feet, throw that one silver dollar with, a, with an X on it out over the state of Texas and it would land somewhere in Texas. Then if you would take a volunteer and just for good measure blindfold him, take him up to the border of Texas and say, 
If you take one more step, you're going to be in Texas and somewhere in Texas in the midst of all these two feet of silver dollars all over the state, there is one silver dollar somewhere out there with an X on it. And if you can find that on your first pick, that's the odds of eight of those prophecies being fulfilled. Just eight. And there's over 300. Why, why is that significant? I want to tell you why it's significant. One reason why, there are numerous reasons why it's significant. One reason is that there are more prophecies about the second coming of Jesus than there were about his first coming. Significantly more. And they have been fulfilled one after another, after another, after another, after another. I want to tell you one day for those who love the Lord and are longing for his appearing, they're going to hear a sound that's louder than their radio, louder than their lawnmower, louder than anything else that's going around. It's going to sound like a trumpet. And Jesus is going to appear in the sky and you will have paid your last mortgage, your last car note. You will have cut grass for the last time and you will have, you will have dealt with your last bad night of sleep because your, your hip or your shoulder was hurting. You will no longer have to worry about any physical issues. Those who love the Lord will be caught up to meet him in the air. That's one reason why it's significant. Another reason is this, because if Jesus, if all of those things happen and we have, we have the record of history, we have the record of history. This is not, faith is not a blind leap. Faith is evidence. Faith is, faith is real. I'm putting my faith in something that's real. If what Jesus said was true, not only about his coming or his second coming, then what he said about salvation is also true. About how to have a relationship with the Father, about how to have eternal life, about how to experience the resurrection. That is also true. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, he said, the Son of Man came, and this is what he came for. He came to seek and to save. He came to seek and to save. He took the initiative. It's just like, it's just like God coming into the Garden of Eden and, and Adam and Eve have sinned and they're hiding in the, in the bushes and God doesn't sit back and say, well, you know, whenever they're ready, they'll, they'll come find me, they'll come talk to me. No, God goes on a mission. Adam, where are you? God knew where Adam was. He knew. But he's, he's starting a conversation. He's trying to get Adam to say, God, I'm over here. I'm, I messed up. I really messed up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Can I just, can, can we start again? God, can you help me? Can you help me? And here, here we see Jesus. He is coming. He's not sitting back. He's not saying, well, you know, whenever they're ready, whenever they get tired of, you know, what's going on, you know, they'll, they'll just come. No, he is taking the initiative. He's invading the planet and he is on a, not a search and destroy mission. It's a search and rescue mission. And he is looking, he's searching. He is searching just like the woman who was searching for the lost coin, just like the shepherd who was searching for the lost sheep, just like the father who welcomed back the lost son. He was searching, the Bible is so clear, he was searching for blind beggars and lepers. He was searching for wild men. 
who were living in the tombs and in the cemetery. He's searching for self-righteous Pharisees who didn't think that they needed him. He was searching for fishermen, for politicians. He was searching for radicals who were willing to kill for their cause. Today, we would call them terrorists. He was searching for them. He was searching for doctors, tax collectors, rich men at the top of the heap and people who were so poor no one would even touch them. He was searching for prostitutes and drunks. And while they were dying on the cross, Jesus reached out to the two thieves that were on each side of him. And I've got to say to you that there may be somebody here today and I want you to know that Jesus is searching for you. He's been following you around and you've heard his voice. It's been gentle. It's been soft. His is the voice that says, you know you ought not to be doing this. You shouldn't be living this way. You know you weren't raised like this. You know that's not the way to live. That's not, that's not the way you should act. That's not the way you should handle this. You've heard his voice speak to you when you got still and when you got quiet. And he's searching for you, not just, not just the crowd, for you as a specific individual. He knows everything about you. The Bible says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. That's language that we don't hear real often in the church anymore, but it is so descriptive. We get lost. We get lost in life. As a matter of fact, maybe you'll recognize it if I phrase it the way it's often phrased. I just have to find myself. I just, I need to disengage and I just need to, I need to go and find myself. Life has gotten so busy. Burdens are so big. There's such confusion. I'm so stressed. I just need to go and find myself. I need to figure out who I am. Well, Jesus knows who you am. He's the one that created you. He's the one who can make all the pieces fit. He's the one who can make life make sense. He's the one who can speak peace in the middle of a storm. He's the one who can give you a future and a hope. If we were, if we were to look at our condition, again, it's the prophet Isaiah who lays it out for us most eloquently. He says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That, that is the situation, that is the very essence of sin, that we have all gone our own way. It, it wasn't a lack of education. It would be, and education is great and you should get all the education you possibly can, but it wasn't a, a lack of education because the truth of the matter is you and me both have known the difference between right and wrong. And we chose wrong because that's what we wanted too many times. Not every time, but too many times. So it wasn't, it wasn't just a matter of education. Sin, how, how can we describe the effects of sin? If sin were blue, we would be all blue. All blue. From our head to our feet, our hands, our mouth, our eyes, we would be all blue. Maybe parts of us would be light blue, sky blue. Parts of us would be navy blue, dark blue, midnight blue. But we would be all blue. We are infected. And Jesus came to cleanse us, to give us a new start, to give us a new heart, 
This is so significant because, because there are people who believe, you know, if I just had a new job, if I just had a new boyfriend, if I just had a new girlfriend, if I just moved to a new state and just had a new start, the problem with a new start like that is you're still taking the same old heart to your new start and nothing changes. What you need is a new heart. And then you can have a new start. How does that happen? Well, the Bible tells us exactly how that must happen. Jesus said this. He said, you must, you must be born again. It's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. You must be born again. Nicodemus put it in words. How can that happen? I'm a grown man. How can I be born again? I want to tell you how you can be born again. It starts with honesty. We have to be honest with God. We've got to be transparent with him. Who can hide anything from God anyway? So we've got to be honest and we've got to come to him and say, God, I'm a sinner. I've gone places I shouldn't have gone. I've done things I shouldn't have done. I've said things I shouldn't have said. That's where we begin. Honestly assessing our condition before a holy God. And then secondly, we, we must believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the son of God, that he's the savior and, and that he rose from the dead and that he can do what he said he can do. And that is that he took the penalty for my sin and for your sin, for my wrongdoing, for your wrongdoing. All of the laws that we have broken, there are consequences and Jesus took the consequences for all of us. He didn't negotiate a lower price. He didn't get a bargain buyout. No, he paid the price in full for our freedom. And then third, we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord is an old English word that is often used for boss, governor, someone who's in charge. And what I'm saying is that I'm, I'm giving my life to God that I will come humbly before him and that I will approach him and say, God, I know that I am a sinner and I come before you. I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. I believe that he was beaten, that he was crucified, that he was placed in the tomb for three days and that he conquered death, hell, and the grave. And I believe that he lives for me and that he can impart life to me. And God Here I am. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm not worthy to be called your daughter. God, if you will accept me, I'll give you my life. I will give you my life. That's how the prodigal came. He didn't say, he didn't come home and say, Dad, uh, just want you to know I accept you as my father. He said, I'm not even worthy. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And you know what the father's response was? He opened his arms and he restored him to the family. Brought out the ring, brought out the robe. No, no, you're not, you're not my servant. You're my son. And that's what God does. Even though we come with that humility, it may seem scary to us. The Bible tells us those who come to him, he does not reject. I'd like to pray with you. I can't think of a better time of the year to begin a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ than at Christmas time, understanding the reality of the incarnation and how much God loves us. I can't fathom that kind of love. 
But I want you to know that with all your faults and failures and shortcoming and stubbornness and willfulness, that God loves you. As a matter of fact, one of the most amazing verses in all of the Bible I find in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19. And in part, it says this, the apostle Paul is writing to the church and he says, I want you to understand that God is at this time, God is not counting men's sins against them. How many of you grew up hearing something that may have sounded something like that? You better stop that. God's going to get you. The truth is that God is not counting your sins against you. Somebody else is. He's called the accuser. He's called Satan. And his job is to discourage and demoralize and drag every ounce of hope out of you. And God has plainly said, I love you. I love you this much. And if you will come to me, I can give you a new heart and a new start. I want to pray with you. I want to pray with you. And I want you to know that God loves you. God loves you. God wants to have a relationship with you. I want to ask you just before we pray, if you would join me, just bow your head, close your eyes. If you would like to ask Jesus to forgive you, if you would like to give your life to him, would you just lift your hand and say, Pastor Paul, I want to be a part of that prayer. If you're here today and you just, you want to have that kind of a new start, would you just lift your hand, stick it up real high. Don't want to miss, I see your hand right there. I see another hand over there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you some words that you can borrow. You can take these words, repeat them, make them your very own. And I would like to ask everyone else in the room to join with us in this prayer. If you've prayed this before in your past and you've got a relationship with the Lord, just say this prayer with us. Pray this prayer with us as we remember the first time that we prayed this prayer and gave our life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd like to ask everyone, please participate and let's use our outside voices, okay? Are you ready? Here we go. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. I confess that I am a sinner. I confess that I am a sinner. I've gone places I shouldn't have gone. I've done things I shouldn't have done. I've said things I shouldn't have said. And I'm so sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Please heal my heart. Fill me with your love and with your Holy Spirit. I give you my life for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health, until I finally see you face to face. I will live for you. I will serve you. I thank you for your love for me. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 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 Come on church. Give God praise right now. Thank the Lord for his goodness and grace.